you open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And as we go to the Lord in prayer this morning, uh, keep in mind that, uh, well, you may not have heard, but uh, a former pastor here, Bob Riley, he's been having some uh, health issues over the past several months, and he's in the hospital now. I guess they're going to begin to conduct some tests. So just keep him and his wife in prayer. Uh, he's a very, for those of you who don't know him, he's a very godly man, and I know he means a great deal to to many people here, so uh, I can't remember the name of the hospital he's in, uh, but uh, he's been admitted for, uh, again, some tests to try to, I guess, figure out the issues that uh, he's been having. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as always, we are grateful that we can come to you with those things that we are most concerned about, and know, Lord, that as we pray, that, Lord, it pleases you to respond to our prayers and that you do answer prayer. And Father, we do pray for our brother as he... Uh, has been admitted to the hospital as he begins to go through various tests as they seek to discover uh, the difficulties that, we, that he's having. We pray that they will be able to find uh, whatever the issues are and that they will be able to address them, that he may find relief. And Father, as we come before you here this morning, as we continue to worship, we pray, Lord, as always, that you bless our time in your word. Father, many of us, we want to Make sure that our lives matter. We want to be able to do things, Lord, in life that are truly meaningful. We want our lives to to matter when it comes to the lives of our children and our grandchildren. To those that we care for, other members of our family and friends, and even those, Father, that we just meet in life. And Father, one of those ways is those things that we've been discussing. How we can influence others and even influence them deeply, which is going to be primarily, Father, through discipling them, which, Father, can take on many forms. And so we pray, Father, as we continue to look at what your word says, that, Lord, that you would help us to think through them, that we may understand that you too also desire for our lives to have great meaning, And that our lives do matter to you, and how our lives are lived does matter to you, and it does matter to other people. And so we pray that you'd help us to think about these things properly and correctly in light of your word. And so we ask then that you would open up the word of God to our hearts and minds, that we may grasp these truths, and they may become a part of who we are and the way we live. And so we thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, it reads this way, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor do we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Let me reread to you verses 7 through 9 in the Amplified, as it then focuses in on those things that we've been focusing on ourselves. So beginning once again in verse 7, For you yourselves know how it is necessary 
to imitate our example. For we were not disorderly or shirking of duty when we were with you. We were not idle. Nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and struggle we worked night and day that we might not be a burden or impose on any of you for our support. It was not because we do not have a right to such support, but we wished to make ourselves an example for you to follow. So in general, the main point that Paul is making here to the ones he's writing to is that he had the absolute right for them to support financially the ministry that he was doing and the ministry he was involved in. But when it came to them, in this particular case, when he was with them in Thessalonica, he then decided that he would not seek their help in any way. Because he understood that it would be easy for them, in this instance, to misunderstand what he was doing and why he was doing it. And so he thought it best then, because he wanted to be a good example to them, he wanted to make sure that he help them to understand how we are to live the Christian life. He then decided he would not take their money, but that he would, like them, work every day and provide for himself. And he did that so that they would, again, understand and learn how it is they should be living the Christian life. Over the past several weeks, we have been slowly changing a, uh, an explanation of what a certain type of ant does. There's different types of forager ants. And again, all this is based on what it says in Proverbs, that we are to go to the ant and study the ant and learn from the ant. And so we need to do that. And so there are those who do that in great detail. And there's a certain type of forager ant that's involved in a particular type of teaching. So there are a few things alive besides man that actually engages in, in teaching um, other beings of their species. And this forager ant is one of those. And so I've kind of taken out all the things now associated with ants and interjected all of it with how we are to be involved in each other's lives as Christians because I think this is, does a great job of helping us to understand in detail how we are to relate. So it begins by talking about, there's a phrase it uses, which is interactive teaching behavior. The idea is the, is the one who's doing the discipling or the teacher uh, is literally interacting with the one that they're teaching. Uh, but it's done not only just by lecturing, it's done by behavior. Uh, they're doing these things together. So interactive teaching behavior has been observed in these ants and should be observed in Christians. In this sense, knowledgeable Christians directly lead less informed or new believers to newly discovered truths about God and about life, etc. That's found in reading and studying and applying the Word of God, as well as, which is found in solid teaching and reading sources, and this is done by, at times, the excruciating, slow, and time-costly process of tandem running. The one being discipled obtains knowledge that he would not have had had he not been tutored. This is social learning. Social learning by teaching requires that the disciple change his behavior and acquire some skills or knowledge faster than he would have independently, and that the teacher should incur some inconvenience. In order for the disciple to learn the lay of the land, the discipler must make his way through life at a much slower pace and make frequent stops to check on his disciple. Both discipler and disciple are to be acutely sensitive to the progress that each is making. 
the disciple maintains close contact with the discipler by frequently spending time with them. There is a benefit to the disciple in being separated from the discipler in some cases because independent exploration of living life as a Christian is critical. So what is described combines social learning with individual learning, and this is done in order to maximize benefits of this practice. So all of that is basically describing how this process is to be done, because discipleship, as we have seen, is where we focus on growing in maturity. And this is brought about both by teaching, both formally and informal teaching, and by life transformation. The last several weeks, we've looked at some things that we've drawn from the New Testament about what we are to pass on to others. Again, pass on, whether we're passing this on to our children, our grandchildren, other new believers that we know. It's the ideas and the things that we are to live by, which is humility, self-sacrifice, unconditional love, having a, a very high commitment to serving God, receiving and sharing the gospel with joy, holy living. Then we looked at 3 John where we saw on the negative aspect that, uh, in their sense, a refusal to show hospitality, uh, being divisive, and speaking maliciously of others were things that they were to stop doing. And then we ended with uh, talking a great deal about what it means for the believer when it comes to suffering for Christ and that we are to expect there to be a suffering for Christ and how we need to pass it on to others. So what I want to do beginning this morning is to look at how this was done by both Paul and Jesus. How did they disciple others? What does this look like? So we can understand more how to go about this. Because oftentimes the very first thing that we think or what comes to mind is, well, okay, I'm to disciple others, but I don't know how to do that. And how do you do that? I I don't know. I've never been trained, uh, and so I I can't do it. I'm not qualified. Well, that's untrue. Uh, First thing is when it comes to the life of Paul, and the first thing that that we should notice about Paul's practice of doing discipleship was even though Paul was in the position of an apostle, he was in the position of being a leader in the church. Being an apostle meant that when the church had a, any kind of disagreement, whatever he said was, could not be disputed. It, it, you know, there are no apostles today, uh, so a pastor is not an apostle. But what he said could not be disputed. It had to be obeyed. To disobey the apostle was to disobey God in this sense. But what Paul did was he treated other believers as equal, as equals in the body of Christ. It's a very important attitude. If we do not treat others as equals, then it will affect the way that we teach them. We will not be as effective as we should be. It also affects the one that we're teaching, that they will not receive as well as they should have the things that we want to pass on to them. There's going to be a barrier between the two of us, if we do not treat them as equals. We are in this together, is the idea. Even if I know more than you, I'm not better. I'm still learning. None of us are in the position of having arrived. One may be in front of another, but no one's arrived yet. And so we never want to allow that to be um, somehow... uh, uh, attributed to ourselves. We don't want that to be communicated to the other. Now, that doesn't mean that we do not, then with uh, clarity and confidence, share what we do know. But again, it's not done as one who's, you know, already accomplished all these things, and now you're kind of like the guru kind of uh, idea. When you look at the scriptures, we see that Paul referred to Timothy and Silvanus uh, as being apostles with him, even though they, they weren't apostles in, this, in the strict sense. 
They were subordinate to him in authority and in their Christian maturity. He called Apollo a co-worker and Timothy a fellow worker and a brother, even though Timothy was his son in the faith. So that attitude, again, was important. He wasn't just being just nice. He wasn't just being accommodating. That was truly his attitude towards them. He was truly viewing them as those who were, who were his fellow workers. Uh, he wasn't concerned about who was getting the credit and who wasn't getting the credit. He was trying to teach them and to instruct them and to lead them on the way. Also, what's important is when you read through the writings of Paul, he never identifies the role of a discipler as a spiritual gift. And again, that's important because if it's a spiritual gift, then immediately many could say, well, I don't have that gift. So I'm off the hook. Well, it's not a spiritual gift. Uh, All of us that are part of the church, which is all believers, are to be involved in discipling others. So again, all Christians, both those who are imitating mature believers and as those who are being imitated, are again equal in the body of Christ and all are to be involved in it. So this is a kind of a thing that is going on all the time. It's not just something that's set apart to where certain people are assigned to disciple certain people and then that's where discipleship happens. That does take place. That would be formal teaching and that type of thing. But that's not all that it is. And it's not limited to that. It is something that all of us are to be aware of and are to be involved in uh, as believers. That is to, to influence our thinking. We are to be aware of when we are in the presence of new believers. We are to be aware when we are in the presence of those who might be just ignorant of certain things. And so the goal then is we want to teach them. Again, not as one who's arrogant, but we really want to help them along. We want to make life better for them. We want to make life easier for them as a Christian. And so if they understand certain things, if they learn certain things, it's going to help them. You may come across a new believer who may think that now that they're a believer, everything is going to be great and wonderful. Now, we, we may need to burst the bubble nicely, so it's not like we're walking around as a, cos- a cosmic killjoy, but the point is, is that we want them to understand, because they need to be ready for what? Man, life is still hard, and you may even have more difficulty. And so they need to learn that. That will help them. It will make life easier in one sense for them, because then when things do go wrong, they're not stunned by it. It's, oh yeah, I was told this would happen. And they now know maybe more how to deal with that. Again, both by you informing them and perhaps at times as we share with them how we have gone through it ourselves or maybe we are in the midst of going through it ourselves. Paul's ability to hold these two things in tension, the idea that he was a mature leader and apostle, but that he was also not better than others, and that they were all on an equal footing before the Lord, he understood that and had a firm grasp of that. The other aspect of Paul's practice of discipleship, which we've seen this a few times as we've read the scripture, is there was a willingness on his part to invite other people to imitate him. He wasn't the founder of Christianity, but he could call others to imitate him as he imitated Christ. In other words, there was a willingness to come alongside others, to join up with others, to invite them maybe to come along with him, to go along the path together. So again, there is this idea of of unity, the idea of of being together, of joining up together, of helping each other along. Oftentimes in team sports, if if you like sports, 
Um, and if you, whether you watch it at a high school level or you participate in it or at a college level, or even at a professional level, but more so, I guess, in the high school and, and the college level because of the, the dynamic of what takes place because of the high uh, change of players in whatever the sport happens to be. One of the things that every good coach always strives to do every year is he wants his team to come together, to, to, to be able to work with each other and actually to work for each other. For those who have experience, to take those with inexperience under their wing, even if that individual has greater talent than they have, who might even take their position. What they want to cultivate is that they are not the enemy. That they, are, they want the team to come together to fight against the enemy, so to speak. That's the language they use in sports. So don't get, you know, if you're not into sports, don't say they fight against who, the enemy. That's a very common language in uh, sports. It's really great. But anyway, but the point is, is that that's the whole idea is for that to happen. And, and I remember once reading, reading a story about a coach. He was, uh, this is Lou Holtz. Uh, that's when he took over um, the program at South Carolina, which uh, had been a perpetual doormat uh, in the SEC football for decades. And, um, you know, recruiting is always a, a difficult thing. But there was, what, I think it was his second year there. Maybe it was his first year. It doesn't really matter. But he, he understood that the team, they were not together. It was almost like every man for himself. Just not a good situation. So on this particular day, uh, which is very rare for a coach to do, he canceled practice, which it was a very hot day, so the players were very happy. But, but what he did was he had them all kind of gather in a, in a smaller room, uh, in the gym. And what he asked them to do, he asked the players to, he, he, he had uh, already spoken to a couple of the captains, and he said, I want you to stand up and I want you to tell the other players your story. Tell them where you grew up. Tell them how you grew up. What was good, what was bad. What was hard, what was easy. And so they did. And so they, they would get up and they would talk about their lives. And, of course, you know, you, in a room like that where you have anywhere from 80 to 120 players, you know, it's across the spectrum. You have guys who, who they did not know who their dads were. You had individuals who, were, who may have been beaten over and over and over again by abusive parents. Those who were beaten up by abusive boyfriends. Those who were neglected by their single moms. And just, it just kind of went on. And there was a lot of very moving, very emotional stories that were being shared. And as they, as, they, as they got to know each other better and understand each other's backgrounds, when that session was over, which I think ended up going like four hours, he said, the next practice, completely different. Without them telling them to, they were helping each other. They were encouraging each other. Now, there were still guys making tons of mistakes, but there was no longer any players cutting down other players. There was no one complaining about this guy or that guy. They were trying to encourage and help each other out because they, all had, they were all trying to achieve the same goal. And that's kind of the idea that Paul is talking about here when, it, when, it, when he talks about coming alongside people and even offering to imitate or asking others to imitate him. In the sports world, especially again on the high school and collegiate level, one of the things coaches always do when they talk to those who are leaders in the team is they talk to them not just about what they're saying, though they may have to encourage them to be a little more verbal, but they say, you have to set the example. And it may be they have a good work ethic, but they're really missing it over here. 
And so they tell him, everything you do matters. Not just what you do in the weight room, not what you just do in the field, what you do in the cafeteria, what you do in the classroom, what you do in the dorm at night, all of those things. Because everything you do is an example, good or bad, to those who are following. And that's to, again, allow the team not only to come together, because a part of that team coming together is many of the guys simply what? Maturing. They grow up. And as they do that, then you begin to have that cohesiveness. And you'll find that a great deal. Anyone who's been involved in sports, you'll find that even those who may have great, um, uh, achieve great things individually as players, oftentimes you tell them, you hear them say this, that the most important thing to them was what their other teammates thought about them. It's how it is with a family, right? What's the biggest and most important thing in the life of a kid? What mom and dad thinks about them. And what should happen for us is it should... Uh, the opinion that we have of each other should matter a great deal to each other. Because, again, we are family of God. We are the, 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 the children of Christ. We are those who are to come together for this goal. And so what believers think of each other uh, is a huge deal, and it should be. Not the sense of being popular and well-liked because it feeds your ego, but because it matters to us, because we love them and they love us. So, again, this invitation he gives to others to imitate him is not then born out of arrogance. It's not because he says, oh yeah, I got my act together, so you need to follow me. It's not that at all. It was very much this kind of this wide-eyed, innocent, I love Christ, and I am doing these things that God has taught me, that's helped me to get close to him, and I want you to be a part of that. That's kind of the attitude that's behind it. So Paul calls, calls his converts to imitate him. It's true, when you read through the Bible, that there are times that even Paul uh, fails to reach this very high standard. These types of difficulties are obvious when we look at the examples of some of the very godly ones in the Bible. It's a danger that uh, inhibits many Christians in summoning believers to imitate them. But if Paul did not set the pattern of his own life before his converts, there was no other actual pattern he could set. To outline in words the behavior of Jesus would not have provided an example sufficiently concrete for them to turn into action. So then what we need to remind ourselves of is this. If we do not set the pattern of our own life before others, there is no other actual pattern we can set to just describe to others, to just describe to your children, to just describe to your friend. How Jesus or Paul lived is just simply insufficient. It's just not enough. It will not be effective. We must live it out. In the same way that we oftentimes, we want to teach our children how to share and be nice to each other. And we're still selfish. Be bad for me to tell my kids to, be, to, to, to not be selfish and then they hear me tell Cindy... I don't care what you want for dinner. I want this. Yeah, it's the same thing. Now, so they won't do what dad says. They'll do what dad does. Besides, what we do need to remember is this. Jesus lived in a different culture from Paul's converts. And Paul lived in a different culture than we. And he never encountered the kinds of problems or the way that we have to encounter problems today. Paul then had to translate both by precept, by his teaching, and by example, the behavior of Jesus into a new culture. We must translate both by precept 
an example, the behavior of Jesus and Paul into our culture. And, and that would not be done just by wearing the t-shirt that says, what would Jesus do? Because if you don't know who Jesus is intimately, you have no clue what he would do. And so that's, so we can ask that question, but uh, we need to be careful uh, to just kind of throw that phrase around. The idea is we need to be well studied in what the Word of God says so that we will not only uh, be able to say what Jesus would do, we need to live that out. When you look at the life of Jesus, we know that Jesus discipled others and he would be the most excellent and perfect example. And of course, some people would say, well, then I can never imitate that. Well, that's not, that's not, we're not asking each other to be perfect, but we can learn from him. And so we want to note some significant observations about discipleship from the way Jesus transferred his character to his followers, and in particular the 12. Again, we've been talking about the theme of imitation. It's a major part of the ministry of Jesus. We oftentimes see the same themes presented. That disciple is to learn, to follow Christ in humility. There's to be self-sacrifice, unconditional love. All of that is presented in the Gospels. Jesus taught that a disciple must be fully committed to God. Turn, if you would, to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. We'll look at two, two verses very rapidly. Matthew, chapter 6, and look at verse 24. Matthew, chapter 6, verse 24. <clears throat> Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So in the teaching of Christ, again, they need, they, he was teaching they needed to be fully committed to God. Turn over to chapter 8 of Matthew, beginning in verse 18. And when Jesus saw a great multitude about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. Again, what he was stating there was that they needed to have their priorities in order. And the most important thing, the significant thing, was they need to be fully committed to following God. He highlighted the need for his disciples to receive uh, and share the gospel joyfully. That is seen when his calling of Peter and Andrew to be fishers of men when he sent his followers on evangelistic missions and sending them into the world to be his witnesses. Jesus spoke often with his, with his disciples about their need for living a holy life. And he also taught them that they were going to suffer and the importance of that. But we, also, we should also note this. Jesus' choice of disciples. His disciples did not choose him. He chose them. And that was unusual because in those days, you had many men who would travel around and... Individuals would come and want to follow this rabbi or this rabbi or this philosophy teacher because the Greek philosophers did the same thing. And so you, you might, there might be a charge. You have to come up with some money. They give to him so you could be their disciple and then kind of follow him around. Here Jesus picked individuals, said, you come follow me and, and chose them. There was kind of a foreign idea in that time as to how people became disciples of teachers. But again, the application is, I think, very appropriate to us that it's okay for us, and maybe we need to choose and single out someone to disciple. In other words, that's not being arrogant. You're not, well, you are intruding, but you're intruding on life in a good way. But we want, we should want to influence them. You don't always have to say to an individual, I want to disciple you. Uh, You can at times, 
But for example, when it comes to, again, our children, it's just a natural thing. Actually, if you're a believer, God's already appointed and called you to disciple them, period. That's what you're to do. And we need to pick up that mantle and begin to do that. It's important. One may also choose, in fact, let me just say this real quick. Sometimes people say, well, you know, when it comes to our kids, you know, we just kind of give them some information in general, but we let them choose their own way. Why in the world would you do that? That makes no sense. You are the parent. The job of a parent is to decide for their kids, especially in the beginning. Period. You want to influence them. I guarantee you that when your kid is six years old and they go outside to play and someone says, ah, I, I just want to let you know that I you know, saw your kid outside playing and there's a couple of kids he's making friends with. You might want to keep your eye on them. We don't say then, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't intrude in my kid's life like that. I let them pick their own friends. I let them decide for themselves who they want to hang out with. No, we don't do that. At least I hope you don't do that. We say, really? Which ones? Point them out again? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we want to get the information, we want to find out what the deal is. Because we don't want them influencing our children. And so it's the same kind of idea. One may choose, in fact, you can even choose a non-believer to disciple, just so you know that. It's okay. You can choose a non-believer to disciple. Because it may be by means of your discipleship that they come to know Christ. There are individuals who are interested in Christianity. One may begin to come to church. They don't know God. You don't know where they are. And you may ask them if they're a believer. They say, well, I, I don't really know. And you can say, you know, if you'd like, I'd be more than happy to meet with you and we could kind of go through some things so you could understand Christianity better. I got a book you can use for that. I do. I'm not just saying that. I really do. I have a book you can use for that. It's, it's easy to use. It's terrific. Uh, it, you can use it with a non-believer, with a new believer. It is fantastic and so you should want that and so how how great is that to be involved in to see god work in their heart and see the lights begin to come on and the individual come to know christ so again when it comes to this we need to realize that we can be like jesus and we can choose individuals we can point them out you can even begin to to spot individuals begin to pray to ask that god would would Help you to be brave enough that the Lord would bring about the circumstance that you could bring it up, that you would ask the individuals to begin to pray now for that future time when you're going to ask them. And if you pray, pray about that and it gets to that point you want to ask them and you find out someone else has asked them, you should rejoice and begin to pray. That guy will help that individual. And then you pick somebody else. You don't say, oh, well, I tried that once and I prayed and, you know, they picked somebody else. All dejected. You know, I don't know why they didn't choose me. Don't do that. Just pick somebody else. For whatever reason, God didn't want them to be with you. He wants you to pick somebody else. So that's what we do. When it comes to the life of Jesus, many books have been written about the various uh, levels or groupings of those that Jesus discipled. The first level were those that consisted of those who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but they were occasional companions. Uh, they were there when it was convenient. Uh, they were there during festive seasons. They were literally unable to follow him around. It wasn't because maybe they weren't interested. They just had things they had to do. They had, they had to work. They were farmers or what have you. And so they couldn't commit themselves to doing that all the time. But they were nonetheless, they were disciples. The second level consisted of those who engaged in more or less a consistent uh, time with the Lord. It was not necessarily uninterrupted, but they would show up on, on many occasions. We don't really know, know the full number of disciples that Jesus had. 
Uh, but we do know that there are many times that multitudes gathered. And we do know that at one point he sent out what? Seventy. He sent 70 out in pairs, so there's more than 12. There is the group of 12. That's the special group, so to speak. But there were 70 that he sent out at that time. So there were people who were coming and they were going. There were those who were attracted to Christ for different reasons. And then after a while, they left. Some of them became disillusioned. It wasn't the fault of Christ. John chapter 6, verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. I mean, that happens. But don't take that personal. If we're, if we're doing this right, that person might be rejecting, they're rejecting the message, they're rejecting Christ. They may try to make it sound like it's about you. Yes, we have to, uh, you know, expect that. There, of course, the highest level of discipleship was the, was the 12 that Jesus chose to train them to be apostles. And they were with him all the time. And even some have noted that even within that 12, there was a smaller inner group, Peter, James, and John. They weren't more privileged than others, but they did have greater access to Jesus. He did teach them more, and they did have some pretty special experiences with Jesus no one else did. They were the ones that were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, which was just an incredible thing uh, that we read about, both in the book of Matthew, and then Peter mentions it later on. But here's what we need to remember. When it came to those 12, they were uneducated fishermen. One was a despised tax collector. Another was a religious zealot. In fact, when it comes to Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot, they were on the opposite extremes of the political spectrum. One was a liberal Democrat, and one was a super ultra-conservative Republican. I mean, they were just on opposite ends when it came to that. At the beginning, these men were exceedingly ignorant. They were narrow-minded. They were superstitious. They were full of Jewish prejudices, misconceptions, and animosities. And yet Christ chose them. When I think about that, this is important. If nothing else, we need to get rid of any and all preconceived ideas as to who or what makes for a successful candidate for discipleship. You need to do not try to figure in advance who would be a good disciple and who won't. Because Christ can change any man or woman. He has done so, and he will continue to do so. So you need to drop your prejudices. We all have them. Prejudice is not just racial things. You might be prejudiced because of the way they look, by the way they act, by their demeanor, by their attitudes, by the way they talk, by the language they use, whether that's slang, or maybe they custom, or whatever it happens to be. We make all these Prejudgments. Oh, yeah, I always thought so, but he wouldn't make a very good disciple. I can just tell he won't stick with it. No, you can't. You don't know that. Maybe unchanged he won't, but there's this guy we believe in, this person. He's God. He's created all things from nothing. He's been changing people for a long time. Look what he did to you. You are now a person who is interested in God and the things of God and in church. Where did that come from? You didn't wake up one day and say, you know, I've been thinking about life philosophically for a long time. And I have surmised Christianity, that's where it's at. I am so glad I figured that out. I am so smart. In fact, I realized that I, I need to change my heart. So I'm going to work on that for a while. I'm going to change my heart. And then I'm going to, I'm going to get myself to a level where then I can pass that information on to other people. That's not what we did. 
Normally what happens is at some point in life, we become aware of what? Our shortcomings, our sin, our rebellion. And that we're in desperate need of a Savior, Christ. And, we, and even the Bible even tells us that the faith, the exercise to believe in Christ, it didn't even come from us. That was a gift from God as well. He says, oh, by the way, you can't believe in me here. And so we exercise the faith he gives us to believe in Christ, and he transforms our life. And we become very different people. And we continue to become very different people along the way. And so we then should not at all try to engage in what I call predictive choosing. Don't do that. Just, you know, throw that out. So when it comes to being a disciple, let me just tell you a quick story. When I was a, a chaplain, um, the, the ministry I was involved with was Good News Jail and Prison Ministry. And one of the things that they had developed through the years was they had developed what was called a life learning dorm. This was done in about six or seven jails throughout the nation. And the idea was is they had a special dormitory where general population of, of inmates was housed. And it was a very simple idea. They were taught the Bible every day. And also, uh, they, there was a certain number of there were these Bible studies they had to do on their own. They were required to do that work every day. No special privileges. They didn't get extra food. They didn't get extra recess or any of that kind of stuff. It was just, but they would, they would go there. And then also along the way, besides teaching the Bible, they would also teach them about living life, about how to be an adult, how to be, mostly men, how to be a man, how to be a father, how to be a husband, just, and we would do that. And the way that it would work in, the, in these institutions by these other chaplains is they would, uh, you had inmates who would put a request in, and they would, they would want to be a part of the program. So the chaplain would go and he would interview them, talk to them, ask them a bunch of questions. It, it would take him from five to 15 minutes. And then he would decide if they were a good candidate for the program. Well, when I moved here from Hawaii, uh, one of the reasons why they moved me here was, was they were building this big, brand new jail out here, which still isn't big enough. But this new, and, and, they, and they did not want to bring a brand new chaplain. That just didn't work well. So I was involved in a life learning program as well uh, in, in Hawaii. And so they, the, the jail administrator here wanted that program in his jail. So I was working on it, trying to develop it. I was trying to expand it. So they didn't like the way that it was set up in other places because you would go for like 30, 60 days and they'd move you out and bring in a new group. And i go, that's just, that can't be enough. You know, we need to spend more time with them. So I was trying to figure out a way to save time because, you know, I, I don't like to waste time. And so I talked to my boss and told him that, that there was an aspect of the program that I was going to drop completely. He said, what's that? I said, this interview, that's just no good. If you want to come, come. He said, well, why would you do that? I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, because he was a child for a long time. I said, when you interview these guys, did all of them do well? He said, well, no. So you had to kick some guys out of the program? Yeah. So what was the purpose of interviewing them? I mean, you're, you're trying to determine in advance. Normally, as you discuss with non-believers, whether or not they would be able to commit and follow through. I said, I just assume all the non-believers can't commit to that. But perhaps God will change their heart when they're under the word of God. So he said it was fabulous. So we just dropped that, thank goodness. Uh, and if they wanted to come, they came. And there was not a greater percentage of those who quit and those who didn't because there were those who were changed by God. And there were times, I'll be honest, that there were guys that I kind of thought, yeah, that guy, is, he's, I'm, I'm going to have to kick him out because he's going to be disruptive. And there, there were times that God had a, got a hold of me and said, uh, <clears throat> remember the guy that you were going to kick out? He's still here. Ooh. And he's very interested 
And I think I've told you before about a couple guys who changed so much, I thought they were faking. And it was other sources that confirmed to me that they weren't faking because the transformation was phenomenal. Even though I'm in the business of teaching people that Christ can change your life in phenomenal ways. And it was just amazing. And so when it comes to this, in the same way that we don't, we don't really choose our children, you know, you get what you get. You know, we don't say, well, I was going to disciple my children, but you know, I like the Donaldson's children better, so I'm going to disciple them and neglect my own. That's not what happens. We're stuck with the ones we have. However, in the same way with whoever it is that we meet, we need to begin to have this mindset that God wants you he wants to use you to influence other people. And he wants you to influence them for God. He doesn't want you to make them Christians. He does that. He doesn't want you to make them mature. He does that. He wants you to simply be the instrument that he uses. We just have to have an interest in them and an interest in God. I love God. I would say I love other people. I'm learning to continue to love other people. I love some more than others, but, you know, the Lord's changing my heart and still working on that. But, you know, I'm loving others. And so he, and, and, and I think that a large part of this is he wants you to be a part of that so you can be blessed because there's nothing more, it's very difficult to find anything more tremendous than watching somebody change. As I said before, the lights go on, especially if it's your kids and your grandkids, and all of a sudden they begin to understand. It's pretty exciting. As we used to say in Hawaii, I mean, you just get stoked. I know it's a surfing term, but I mean, it's really awesome. It's a good thing. And so I want you to begin to think this way and ask the Lord to help you to think about this type of thing as you live your life as a Christian here in this church and wherever you live. And I believe that God will use that as a means to truly bless your life as well. And the same way that he's blessed your life even by the few that have had some kind of influence in your life as a Christian. Let's pray. Father, again in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace, your kindness, and for the people that you've brought into our lives. Again, Father, we know there are many who are involved in our discipleship those who we uh, saw occasionally because they taught us your word. And then there were those that we saw on much more of a regular basis. And then there were those, Father, that we saw all the time that whether we were aware of it or not, were pouring their lives into our lives. Father, for some, maybe, there, there may be a few who didn't really have anyone to do that. And we are very much aware of the struggles that we went through as a Christian and how much better our life could have gone if we had had someone take us under their wing. I pray, Father, you would remove from us the pride that may stand in the way as we refuse to disciple others. I pray, Father, you would help us to have a great sense of humility, to submit to your word, and to express love and concern for others. Not, Lord, that we have all the answers we don't, but we know the one who does, and we are all learning together your word. We also know, Lord, that you can and you will most likely continue to shape our life, even by the one that we're seeking to disciple. And so, Father, we ask that you would change the way we think as believers. Help us to look out as Jesus did and to see that there are many who wander around like sheep without a shepherd. And I pray that our heart will move with great compassion and that we won't just shake our head and say, what a pity, how great it would be if they had someone to show them the way. Help us, Father, to be able to take that bold step that we know the evil one never wants us to make, to begin to interject our lives into the lives of others. And so, Father, we thank you once again for how you've blessed our lives through other people in so many ways. Father, we pray that you would use us 
even in the smallest ways, use us, Father, in the lives of others, knowing, Lord, that the joy will be ours. We thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.